Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. It is this great reality that we come to celebrate together this morning. The longing of God's people for a redeemer has been fulfilled. A savior has been born. But how do we know? How can we have confidence that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the long-awaited Messiah? Why should we have such unwavering confidence that God has in fact fulfilled his promise and sent to us the one who would pay for the sins of all who would come to have faith in him? How do we know that the birth of Jesus is not just a, a sentimental feel-good story that we all enjoy at Christmas time? The truth is there are many proofs of the identity of Jesus Christ that we could point to. The problem is not finding proof, it's deciding which one to discuss this morning. Certainly Jesus' perfect life was proof of his identity. His miracles were proof of his identity. His sacrificial death on the cross was also proof of his identity. And of course his resurrection was proof of his identity. We have a wealth of proof to choose from when it comes to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this morning, I want us to turn our attention to one specific proof of Jesus' identity as the true Messiah. And it's a, it's a proof that was given to us by God himself. It's true that God gave several prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And the Jewish people were anxiously waiting for this promised child. For example, the Jewish people were very familiar with the prophecy of Micah. In Micah 5.2, that the promised child will be born in Bethlehem. And as we studied last week, they knew very well that he would come through the bloodline of King David. But if you think about it, there have been many babies born in Bethlehem. And there were many babies born in the bloodline of King David. And while Jesus did fulfill those prophecies as well, we have to admit that, that these particular prophecies could be applied to a number of different Jewish children. So how do we know that Jesus was the specific descendant of David born in Bethlehem that God was referring to? In order for us to answer that question, we have to have some characteristic of the birth of Christ that is truly unique. And Matthew gives us exactly that. It is the prophecy of Jesus being born of a virgin. And that's what we'll turn our attention to this morning. If you were with us last week, we introduced this passage. And the, the overarching theme of the book of Matthew as a whole is Jesus as king. And we see this really played out on the earliest pages of Matthew's gospel. He begins with the proof of Jesus' kingship as the Messiah's royal genealogy in the first 17 verses. He gives a second proof, the Messiah's supernatural conception, which is what we're studying in verses 18 to 25. And then he follows that with another proof of the fact that Jesus is king, the Messiah's rightful worship in chapter 3, when the Magi come to worship him. But as I said, we're going to focus our attention only on this second proof of Matthew this morning, the Messiah's supernatural conception. Look with me at Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. 
But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, of the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife that kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, before we dive into our verses for this morning, it's important that we just briefly go over what we saw last week because it's really a continuation, a part two of what we began last Sunday. Remember, we're looking at five aspects of the Messiah's conception and birth that are given to us here in these verses. We've already looked at the first three. Aspect number one is a miraculous pregnancy. As we mentioned last week, the story begins with Mary and Joseph, as the text says, they were betrothed. It's important for us all to understand that betrothal at this time period was much, much more serious than what we think of as engagement. For a couple to be betrothed, they were legally married. It was a binding contract between the two of them. In fact, it was so binding that if, if it was to be broken, it had to be done by a legal divorce. The only difference between the betrothal period and the actual marriage was that it, there had been no official ceremony and the relationship had not been physically consummated. So after about a year waiting period, during this betrothal period, there would be a, about a week-long wedding festival celebration that would culminate in the husband taking his wife to his house. However, in this particular instance in Matthew, it's concerning because Mary is found to be pregnant during the betrothal period. So from a human perspective, this can only mean one thing. Mary's been unfaithful to Joseph and has committed adultery. But for the reader's benefit, Matthew makes it very clear that while that may be what it looks like on the outside, something much more significant has happened here. In reality, she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Notice at the end of verse 18, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That brings us to a second aspect of this Messiah's conception and birth, a righteous response. Joseph, being a righteous man who desired to follow the law of God, the law of Yahweh, plans to divorce Mary in accordance with the law, not yet knowing the supernatural nature of this conception, and he chooses to do so privately so as not to embarrass her, shame her publicly. He goes to sleep with that decision made, and that brings us to aspect number three, an angelic reassurance. Before Jesus has the chance, or, or Joseph has the chance to carry out his plan, God miraculously intervenes. He sends an angel to give a vision and a dream to Joseph, explaining that's what, what has really happened is this conception is a miraculous conception, a creative work of the Holy Spirit. And this is no ordinary child, and he should have no ordinary name. Instead, the angel tells Joseph that he is to name this child Jesus. And as we saw last week, that name means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And the reason that he's to give him this special name is because of the mission, the work that the child has come to accomplish. 
The angel says, for he will save his people from their sins. This is why the child has come. He's not come to free the Jews at this time from Roman occupation and Roman oppression. He's come to free and save his people from the guilt they, they had because of their sin, to reconcile them to God. Now, at this point, Matthew wants us to understand why this is so significant, this virgin conception and where it comes from. And that brings us to our text this morning in aspect number four, a prophetic explanation. A prophetic explanation. Look back at the text in verse 22. It says, now all of this took place to fulfill. All of this took place to fulfill. If you've ever read Matthew's gospel and paid attention, then you know this is one of his favorite tactics. Throughout Matthew, he's constantly saying this happened in order to fulfill this prophecy. This happened in order to fulfill this prophecy. In fact, if you're interested in that, I'll put a list on the screen here uh, of several texts in Matthew in which he does just that. We won't go through all of those, but you can write those down and use those. The point is that the virgin conception was not a spur-of-the-moment decision on the part of God. In fact, it was carefully carried out by God in accordance with his previous revelation. The virgin birth is not simply an historical fact. It is an historical fulfillment, a fulfillment of something God had said before. Notice back in the text, he says, All of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet this little phrase, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, is, is a, a condensed version of just an explanation of divine inspiration. How do we have the Bible? How did the Bible come to us? It came to us like this. It's God's word spoken to the prophets. The prophets then wrote it down for us. That's how we have the scriptures. But here he's referring to a very specific word of God given to a prophet. The emphasis here is the explanation of the virgin conception, and this was a fulfillment of God's own word. The fact that the virgin conception was prophesied by God and then brought to pass in the womb of Mary is of great significance, not just for that time, but for all time, for all of human history. Because if that baby that was prophesied so long ago has come to be in Mary's womb as a virgin then that means that he's the promised child and that he bears all of the other characteristics that are given to him in that same prophecy back in Isaiah chapter 7. The virgin birth then is really a verification of who Jesus is. It is indeed miraculous, but the miracle is not an end in and of itself. It points to a greater reality. In order to see that, it's important for us to look at the prophecy itself. First in Matthew's gospel, and then we're going to go back to Isaiah and study the context from which it comes because then we'll have the full significance of this text. But if you look back at verse 23, here is the exact prophecy that Matthew says is fulfilled by this virgin birth. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Now, first and foremost, we see that the significance of this virgin birth is that this baby is given the name Emmanuel. And because Matthew realizes not all of his readers will speak Hebrew, he translates that name for us so that we don't miss it. He says, which translated means God with us. 
This is a direct quote from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7 and verse 14. But what is the true significance of this great name, God, with us? It could mean one of two things. It could either mean that there's something about this child that will remind us that God is with us, or it could mean, as, as Matthew intends, that the child himself is God, and therefore God literally is with us because God has taken on flesh. That is the intended meaning, but how do we know that? It's because of where this prophecy comes from in Isaiah chapter 7. Now, I want to spend some time developing the context of Isaiah chapter 7 because we're jumping into a story here that won't make sense unless we have a little bit of background. So just give me a moment here to get us up to speed with Isaiah 7, and we'll bring this back and show how it connects to Matthew chapter 1. But you may remember that under the reign of King Rehoboam in Israel, this is the son of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel is one nation. But under the reign of Rehoboam, the nation splits in two. Now you have a northern and a southern kingdom. The, the, the ten tribes to the north create a kingdom, and the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, create a kingdom in the south. The southern kingdom of Judah remains faithful to the Davidic line of kings. And so now we have this, if you've ever read in the scripture and you've got confused as you go through First and Second Kings on who are all these kings and how is this bouncing around, it's because it's showing you the kingly lineage of the northern kingdom and of the southern kingdom, and it goes back and forth. The, the southern kingdom, as I said, remains faithful to the line of Judah, and Isaiah is sent as a prophet to this southern kingdom of, of uh, Judah and Benjamin. Now, in chapter 7 of Isaiah, where we're going to be in just a moment, we see that there is a king now by the name of Ahaz. He was a wicked and godless man. He did not follow after uh, the godly kings, but instead he followed after the kings of the north, the, the wicked kings. In fact, he even sacrificed his own son as a, as a human sacrifice to a false god. We see a description of him in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 2 to 4. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and even made his son pass through the fire, and as he burned him as a sacrifice, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel." He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. This is Ahaz, wicked king, but he is a king in the, the lineage of David. And as is always the case, God is faithful to his promise, and he's going to preserve the line of David. But in the time of Ahaz, there's a crisis that comes onto the scene, and the Davidic line becomes endangered. Because two kings decide to go to war with Ahaz. They want to take Ahaz off his throne and replace him with a different king, which would destroy this succession of kings that God said would continue forever from the line of David. Ahaz is terrified. The whole nation is terrified. It's actually the king from the northern ten tribes who's joined up with the king of Syria. The two of them are going to attack the southern kingdom and try to overthrow it and take it over. But... Ahaz, being the wicked man that he is, doesn't seek God's help, but instead calls to the king of Assyria and says, please come and help. He sends him gold from the temple. He sends him gold from his own treasury in order to get this king to come and deliver him. 
But God sends Isaiah to tell wicked Ahaz that instead he should trust the Lord for protection. That he should put his faith not in Assyria, but in God himself. And he even promises that within 65 years, the northern kingdom of Israel, called Ephraim, will be destroyed. It'll be no more. It'll be taken over, the people dispersed, and it will be gone. Now, King Ahaz is told to ask God for a sign to prove that this will come to pass. God, God tells the king, ask any sign that you want to prove that this is going to happen, that I'm going to keep you safe and that these, this northern kingdom of Israel is going to be destroyed. This is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. All of that background brings us to here. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. God encourages Ahaz, listen, don't just ask for a sign. Ask for a true miracle, something that only God could do. Think of something as deep as Sheol, something as high as heaven. That is something truly marvelous that would really prove that God's word will come to pass. But Ahaz, being the wicked king that he is, does not obey God, and he pretends to be humble and says, oh, I could never ask for a sign from God. God responds by rebuking Ahaz, and God himself gives the sign. Listen, Isaiah 7, verses 12 to 14. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that's the context behind the quote in Matthew chapter 1. Interestingly, the sign that God gives to Ahaz has implications for the immediate situation that he's in, but far future-reaching implications that are much more significant. Because what you can't see here in the English text is that he begins in verse 12 by addressing Ahaz specifically. But then when he comes to verse 14, when it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, that's not singular in the Hebrew, it's plural. That is, I will give you as in the nation a sign. I will give a national sign for everyone to see. Not just for Ahaz, but one that will be for the whole nation, actually for the whole world. God is essentially saying, Ahaz, if you won't give a sign, I will give a sign. And it will be a true sign that is as high as heaven and as deep as Sheol. Now before we go back to Matthew chapter 1, let me explain how this prophecy uh, was fulfilled in a small way in its immediate context. And then how we know that it actually points forward to a much bigger reality. Now, in verses 15 to 16 of Isaiah 7, right after he gives the prophecy, he says this, speaking of this son, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. This is the the, the contemporary prophecy for Ahaz. This is how it applies to Ahaz. He says, a son is going to be born, and before he's able to have, at at the mental age of understanding right from wrong, these two kings that you're so worried about are going to be removed. I'm going to remove those two kings from their throne. So really within a, a couple of years. 
This is initially uh, referring to a son that's born to Isaiah himself. In Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, swift is the booty and speedy is the prey. And I will take to, my, uh, take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jerobachiah. So I approached the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him. And this is the Hebrew of swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. That's what he's to name this child. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Now, what's happening here? All he's saying is the way that this prophecy of this special child being born will be fulfilled in the immediate time is that this child will be born to Isaiah before he is is able to say, father or mom and dad, I'm going to remove these two kings. That's all that that means. But clearly, that's not ultimately what this prophecy is about. It can't be. It can't be referring simply to this child that's born to Isaiah. It has to be something more. And this is an example of something that we call a near and far fulfillment of prophecy. A near and far fulfillment. What that means is oftentimes a prophecy is made by God in the Old Testament. And in some small way, it is fulfilled in the immediate context. But it points to a much greater prophecy for the future that is yet to be fulfilled. That's what's happening here. The, the small fulfillment of Isaiah's son just verifies the fact that the ultimate future promise will come to pass. Because here's the big issue. We have to understand that there's more at stake here than just Ahaz not being king anymore. What's at stake is God's promise that the Messiah will come through the line of David. It's not ultimately about Ahaz. It's about the fact that if Ahaz is removed, then the promise is null and void. The promise that he made to David that a Messiah would come through the Davidic line. And this is a deliverer for the whole world, as we've been waiting for since Genesis 3.15, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And so God is giving a prophecy through Isaiah that will prove once and for all that he will fulfill his promise of an eternal king and Messiah who would come through the bloodline of David. And this prophecy is crucially important because something's about to happen in Israel that's going to shake people's confidence. Because what happens in the rest of Isaiah is God tells the, the, the southern kingdom that while he's going to deliver them from this one initial conflict of these two kings that are trying to overtake Ahaz, he is going to bring judgment on both the north and the south. And he's going to allow Assyria to, to really mess with them over and over again and bring war and bring war until finally the Babylonians come in and remove the southern kingdom. Now, all of a sudden, we have an, a northern kingdom of Israel that's gone and a southern kingdom of Israel that's gone, and it seems like all is lost. How is God going to keep his promise if the people aren't even in the land? There's no king on the throne. How's this going to happen? You see, there's a much bigger issue going on than just Ahaz. The entirety of God's promise of the Messiah it seems to be at stake. And so God gives a prophecy that he knows is going to be needed, a big prophecy, a big sign that will make it undeniably clear that he has remained faithful to his promise of the coming Messiah. How do we know for sure 
that the words in Isaiah 7:14 don't just refer to Isaiah's son that was born in Isaiah 8. Well, there's some pretty clear indications. The first one is the, his virgin conception. He says the virgin will give birth to this child. Now, there is some debate about this Hebrew word. Some people say it's not supposed to be translated virgin. It's supposed to be translated as a young maiden. But understand a young maiden, this, the word means a young unmarried woman who is pure. That's the idea of the word maiden. And we know that the word is meant to mean virgin for two reasons. Because later, when we remember that Greek becomes the common language for the people of Israel, and the Hebrew becomes the language they learn in school, but Greek is what they speak, they translate the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. If you've ever heard that word, the Septuagint, it's just the Hebrew Bible translated, translated into Greek. When they do that, the word they choose when they translate this, this word virgin into Greek is clearly the word virgin. It's because the people understood that this word in Hebrew meant a virgin. Not to, not to mention the fact that in Matthew's account, he could not be more clear that he understands this to be referring to a virgin. Remember that Matthew says that all of this has happened in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14. Let me just remind you of the different descriptions that Matthew gives to make it clear that we're talking about a virgin. In Matthew 1:18, he says, "Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit." Matthew 1:20, "For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." Matthew 1.25, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Clearly, the word means virgin. And so it's got to be a prophecy that, that goes beyond what happened in that contemporary circumstance because Isaiah's son was not born or conceived with his wife being a virgin, but in the natural way. Also, finally, we know that it must point to something in the future because of God's description of the sign. Remember when God said, give, give me a sign, and I want it to be as, as deep as Sheol or as high as, as the heavens, and then God himself chooses the sign? It's not miraculous. If all God is saying in that passage is that a, a child's gonna be born to Isaiah, there's nothing miraculous about that. That's happened all throughout history. No, instead, when God says, I'm gonna give you a sign that's truly amazing, and the sign is that a virgin is going to conceive. Now that, that's noteworthy. That has never happened in human history until we come to the birth of Christ. Now, not only is the virgin birth proof that this prophecy pointed to something in the future beyond Isaiah, but also his divine names. The names given to this child are very unique. This could not have been a contemporary child of Isaiah. Now, the first name that we read is the name Emmanuel. She shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. But as we said before, some might make the argument, well, the child was just going to remind the people that God was with them. I don't think so. I don't think so because in Isaiah chapter 9, he continues to talk about this coming child, and he tells us what his names will be. He gives him many names. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, he's, he's talking, he's speaking ahead here, by the way. 
the people are going to be taken over by the Babylonians. It's going to seem as if all is lost. But he's speaking ahead to say that he will preserve a remnant. He will save a remnant of his people. In verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Verse 6. Why? Why will there be peace in the nation? Why will there be a light to the Gentiles? Why, why is this going to happen? Verse 6, for a child will be born to us. What child? The child he was talking about in chapter 7. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Do you understand what he's just said? Isaiah refer, referring again to the fact that the people will ultimately be delivered. And he doesn't say they will be delivered for behold, God will raise up a great warrior he says, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given. And then he goes on to name this child. These are no ordinary names. Mighty God, eternal father. What he's saying is that word Emmanuel literally means Emmanuel, God with us. That baby boy will be eternal God in human flesh. He goes on to say that his reign will be eternal. He will sit on the throne of David. There'll be no end to the increase of his government. It will last forever. Understand that ultimately the northern kingdom of Israel fell in the year 722 BC and the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians in 586 BC. What that means, if math is not your subject, that by the time of Matthew, when he's writing this, when Jesus actually comes on the scene, there hasn't been a physical ruler from the line of David on the physical throne for almost 600 years. It's been a dark time. The people have been allowed back into the land, yes, but they are always under the thumb of someone else. They don't have their own king ruling over them. They're ruled by the Babylonians, and then by the Medes and the Persians, and then by the Greeks, and now they're being ruled by the Romans. And it would seem that when it comes to God's promise of this promised Messiah, that all hope has been lost. How are they even going to know that this child would be the child from the line of David, the king of kings? And this absolutely proves the genius of the sign that God gave that day. It's because the child would come at a time in Israel's history when there had been no succession of kings sitting on David's throne for nearly 600 years. And the only way that they could have known if something truly, that this was him, is if something truly miraculous happened. The virgin birth is the undeniable miracle in which God proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that this specific baby was the promised child. In the midst of absolute darkness, 
and despair when the people are not only under the thumb and oppression of the Romans, but under the the weight of guilt of their own sin without hope, God brings this baby through the virgin conception of Mary by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And this is why Matthew is so careful to say that all of these things took place to fulfill what was spoken by God to the prophet. It's because the virgin birth here is a sign given by God himself to indicate this is him. Saying to the world, he's here. This is the one. God with us. And now we know that after studying, after studying Isaiah, that if this is Emmanuel, in fact, in Mary's womb, then he is also mighty God, eternal father, and he will reign in righteousness on the throne of his father, David. You see, some have mistakenly thought that the virgin conception explains why Jesus was able to live a sinless life or even why he was able to be God and man as if the virgin conception somehow contributed to those things. But listen, that's not the significance the Bible gives to this sign of the virgin birth. The virgin conception was simply the fulfillment of a divinely given sign so that everyone would know definitively who the Messiah was. The point of the virgin conception is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which was the prophecy of God. Here he is, Emmanuel. It's also important to keep in mind that as Matthew writes his gospel here and speaks of the virgin birth and conception, he writes as not just a historian who's interviewed people, but as one who would become an eyewitness of the life of Jesus Christ. He has the whole context of who Jesus really was. And yet he still writes this, which means it it, it can be trusted. This comes from an eyewitness. He wasn't there when the angel spoke to Mary or when the angel spoke to Joseph, but he would go on to see the results of who this child would be. He would see the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Christ. And so he had no trouble believing that this was the promised one, the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7. And we see that Joseph not only understood the words and the meaning of the words that the angel said, but he believed them because we come to a final aspect of this description in in Matthew chapter 1, an obedient response, an obedient response. Look back at verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Before falling asleep, Joseph had his mind made up. He was going to have to divorce Mary. And as we explained last week, for him to take Mary as his wife, knowing that she was pregnant, would put in people's minds the thought that the child must be his, that both of them must be guilty of sin. And that's the only reason that he would have gone along with it. So understand that Joseph realizes he's putting his reputation at risk. Just as Mary was obedient in submitting to God's plan for her life when the angel spoke to her, Joseph is immediately obedient for God's plan to his life, knowing full well that in marrying Mary, it will destroy his reputation. But he doesn't mind because he understands the significance of this child. That is a holy child. Mary has not sinned. It has come by the creative work of the Holy Spirit. Apparently, Joseph didn't wait long to obey the angel's vision because it says, and took Mary as his wife. He awoke, he obeyed, 
and he took Mary as his wife. This would seem to indicate that Joseph went ahead and completed the marriage process so that he could bring her into his home and care for her. But Matthew does include one crucial piece of information. It says, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Now that an angel has declared to both Mary and Joseph that this child is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, they are committed to Mary not only conceiving as a virgin, but giving birth as a virgin. And so Joseph wants to remove any possible thought in anyone's mind that this is his child. And so he obeys God and he keeps her a virgin until the baby is born. But that word until is important for us. It says, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to his son. It's important because some like to teach that Mary went on to be a perpetual virgin, that she remained a virgin for the rest of her life after the birth of Jesus. But this simply has no biblical warrant anywhere. In fact, quite the opposite. Not only do we have the word until here, which clearly indicates they had a normal relationship after Jesus was born, but the Bible mentions that Jesus actually had several siblings. In Matthew 13, for example, it says, He came to his hometown and began teaching them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his Mary call, mother called Mary and his brothers, Joseph and or James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Here we have his four brothers mentioned by name, and he had sisters, plural. So Jesus had at least six siblings. In addition to that, further proof, two of his brothers, James and Jude, actually wrote books in the New Testament. So clearly, the perpetual virginity of Mary is just simply not found anywhere in Scripture. But J Joseph obeyed all that the angel commanded him. He takes her as his wife. Remember, there was something else the angel told Joseph that would be his responsibility. Not only was he to marry her, but he was to name the child. And we see that this naming of the child is Joseph officially adopting this child as his adopted son, which confers upon this son the line of David. And Matthew records that Joseph obeyed not only marrying Mary, but naming this son. And he called his name Jesus, verse 25. He kept her a virgin until she gave birth to his son and called his name Jesus. Now imagine what it must have been like, just for a moment, for Joseph to give the child this legal name, Yahweh saves. Now knowing all that he knows about the child. Remember everything that's taken place up until this point when Joseph names Jesus. Joseph would no doubt have known about the angelic vision sent to Zacharias about the birth of John who would go before Jesus. Mary would certainly have told Joseph about her vision from the angel and, and he his vision to, to her. Then because of the required census, remember, he goes down with Mary uh, to Bethlehem. The baby is born there in Bethlehem. On the night of that birth, these shepherds that they don't know come rushing in from the field, declaring that angels have told them that the son has been born, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Lord. Then they take the long journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem in order to get to Jerusalem by the eighth day so that Jesus could be circumcised and named. 
So all of that's taken place, some of it in a very short amount of time, when you take into account the amount of travel they would have had to do on foot and on a donkey. And so here he comes, he's there to give the legal name of this son. And I wonder if he was hearing in his ears the words of the angel, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, with that name, we are all reminded of the primary purpose for which this child has come. Yes, this baby would one day reign, and eventually he will literally reign as the king of David. But his name will not allow us to forget the fact that he first came for a different reason altogether. He first came to be a savior of his people and to forgive them of their sins. So in this name, Jesus, there is great rejoicing, but it is also mixed with great sorrow. Mary and Joseph got a taste of this sorrow just moments after he was circumcised and named there at the temple. Last week, I read to you a portion of the prophecy that Simeon gave when he came over and held the baby. He promised that this child would bring salvation and be a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. But I didn't read the rest of what he would say. Listen to the rest of the prophecy of this old man Simeon who is there beholding Jesus as a baby. Luke 2 verse 33. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which are being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. To the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon tells Mary that something about this child is going to result in pain so great. That she will fear as if she's been stabbed in the very soul. This can only be a reference to the pain she must have felt. Standing there looking up at her son on the cross. As he was dying for her sin. I mention all of that, believer, because it's so tempting for us to get caught up in the wonder and almost magical feelings of Christmas. We sing our Christmas carols and we sway gently back and forth with nostalgic feelings. But do we grasp the full weight of what we sing? In the virgin birth, God has unambiguously testified to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to redeem his people from their sins. And if we're going to celebrate Christmas appropriately, we have to contemplate not simply the fact that Jesus came, but the reason for which he came. In order for you to celebrate Christmas this year appropriately, it will require that you personally contemplate not just the fact, but the reason the fact that you are a sinner who has broken God's law and therefore you are guilty before God. You and I both deserve his wrath for our sin. And if God was to give us what we deserved, we would spend eternity in hell, forever separated from him. That is the reality. That's why the birth of the Messiah is such a cause for rejoicing. Jesus came to live the perfect life that we failed to live. And he died on the cross as a sacrifice for sin and rose again from the grave on the third day, proving that he really was who he said he was and that God the Father had really accepted his sacrifice as an acceptable atonement for the sins of his people. The virgin birth, then, is a divine proof that Jesus alone is this promised Messiah 
who is eligible and able to save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus would go on to say of himself in John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let me encourage you this Christmas season to press beyond the sentimental feelings that naturally come with this time of year and dwell upon the Son, the Messiah, the Savior. And if you've never truly repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there is no better day than today to realize that this baby was the promised child, Emmanuel, God with us.